And thank you. Thank you, worship team. Let's, uh, before we enter into the proclamation of the word, let's pray one more time. Father, we, we invite you to speak to us, your, your people, that you would um, make our hearts soft to your words, and that as I speak, Lord, we, we ask that you would speak, that you would proclaim uh, the greatness of your work done in, through your Son and by the Spirit, your call on our lives. And that as your people, Lord, change us, transform us to say yes to you and all that you desire of us and from us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Smart, talented, enormous potential were ways that you describe this young man hinting at the promise that would never be. And running into him years after his high school graduation, it was as if the world had passed him by. Despite all the potential that he had, despite all the promise that he seemed to give with his life, all of it seemed squandered. His natural giftings to do well and succeed, wasted. All this promise went unfulfilled because of, well, something inside. The cravings he had that he, could, that he yielded to again and again. He craved entertainment and squandered his time with movies and TV shows and Netflix binge-watching and video games. He craved pleasure and spent his years pursuing women at ex- the expense of all else. He craved ex- escape and gave himself to vices of drugs and alcohol. All his promise wasted through cravings. And we all know somebody like that, don't we? Or at least we will. People who seem to offer so much, and yet, you know, as they go through the journey, they are derailed again and again, not by some outside forces, though they may want to blame those, but by this beast that lurks within, that seeks to ensnare them, and it does so successfully. Perhaps it's you know, an old friend from high school that you randomly meet, met up with and you're like, well, what happened to your life? Some of you may even deal with children or grandchildren that you see it happening before your very own and powerless to stop it. Or perhaps, if we're really honest, we look deep inside and realize that I'm not all that I should be. And I may look fine on the outside, I may look like I have it all together, but I realize when I look at what I could be, what I should be, well, I'm far from that. Wasted potential. Unfulfilled promise. And as you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to be talking about another people with unfulfilled promise. And if I want to remind you of the you know, past few weeks, we've been going through you know, what's been called the sacraments, which are, you know, in the Protestant tradition, you know, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I've been putting forward that, that these events that, in which we participate is that these are means by which God does a work in us and for us. That through baptism, we are connected to Christ and transformed, and, and through our participation in the Lord's Supper, that we, uh, we are participating in Christ himself and, and being transformed by his grace. And if you listen real closely and you took 
it all in over the past three weeks, you may be tempted to think more of them than we ought. And while I have a very high view of the sacraments in the Lord's Supper, and I think that, that came through, we, we don't want to take something a high view and, say, and make it a too high view, where we think that they do more than they, they do. And today is a, a day where we are going to, in some ways, uh, caution against the over-reading, the over-expectation of what the, the sacraments can do in our lives. And so as we enter into 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1, and if you are using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1168. Read with me here. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. But nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were, that it is written that the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We shouldn't commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We shouldn't test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. As we enter into this text, and you know, Paul, it, it's kind of striking and almost a little bit bizarre as he's looking back at Israel's history and, he, and what he uses is, he says this is an example or you know, in the Greek it's the word tupas, which is where we get typology from. Kind of talked about that a little bit last week when we sung about it again today with that same song that we did last week. Right? That within the Old Testament scriptures that God has uh, provided well the patterns, the means by which things happen. And sometimes it comes in contrast, like, you know, we talked about Christ being the better Adam, the one who didn't yield to sin. And sometimes it, talks, it takes what's happened in, you know, the earthly realm and applies it to the spiritual happenings. Right? That the victories of God's people points us forward to the greater victory that is going to be accomplished in Christ. You know, Moses redeeming the people from Israel points us to the redemption or redeeming the people from Egypt points to the greater redemption of God's people from sin and death. And here, as Paul is looking back at Israel's history and he's saying, you know, this is a lot like our own salvation. But there's a warning in that too, isn't there? He, he uses words, and it's almost bizarre in the way that he, he characterizes all that they went through. You know, after being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, they're under the cloud of God's presence. They're, he characterizes the passing through the, the sea as being baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. 
And then he talks about them eating spiritual food and drinking spiritual drink. He's doing all that he can in order to connect their experience to our experience. He doesn't say manna. He says spiritual food. He doesn't say, you know, well, I mean, he connects it to the, the, the rock that gave water, but you know, it's spiritual drink. It's not just crossing the Red Sea. It's them being baptized into Moses. And what we see is he's looking at this people who've had real spiritual experiences, real salvific experiences of God's grace, all of them, and yet God was not pleased with them. They fell short. In their experiencing of their own sacraments, yet at some level, they weren't transformed within the promise that, that it offered. That God had his... You know, God set apart this people for, for his own, to be his own people, and yet, and yet, they were, most of them were destroyed. And we may want to kick back and say, well, listen, yeah, they had these spiritual, but they weren't, they weren't really saved. They, you know, they, they didn't really have a, you know, a real faith in what God was doing. And we try to excuse what, what Paul is saying. I remember hearing D.A. Carson give an example as he's talk, you know, he gives this hypothetical conversation between two Hebrews on the night before the Passover. And they're talking about all of Moses' instructions. And he says, you know, did you hear, you know, Moses told us to, you know, kill this lamb and take its blood and, and paint it on the doorpost of our house. What do you think about that? And the other replies, like, oh, I don't know what I think about that. It kind of, it seems a little weird. I'm not really sure if it's, you know, what, what it's going to do. I, you know, if God's going to come and actually kill all the firstborns, I'm not sure how some blood is going to protect it. What about you? The other replies, well, listen, Moses has really shown himself to be a good prophet. I, I fully believe what he's going to say. And turns back to the other and says, well, you know, you're, you're a little skeptical. Like, are you going to obey what he has to say? Yeah, I'll still do it. I'm just not really sure if it's going to be that effective. And Carson asks the question. He says, well, when the, the angel came through, whose son did he kill? Neither. Why not? Because it's not, the, the salvific power is not in the strength of their faith, but in the power of the blood. And as the, the people of Israel are standing at the sea and, and, they're, and they see that God parts it and some of them are saying, this is God's salvation for us and others are saying, I don't know if it's going to stay open as I'm crossing with my family. And others of them are, are thinking, I don't know if the Egyptians are also going to make it through and just slaughter us on the other side. But who was saved? All of them. Because it's not in the power of their, their, the, the sincerity of their faith or their lack of skepticism, but in the saving power of God. And those who received the manna from heaven is what, how much faith they had, how much they believed that it was going to come again tomorrow, doesn't matter for how full their bellies were after eating it. What we see is that the power of God's grace and salvation was extended to them, and we don't want to just try to weasel our way out of what God is saying and saying, well, they weren't really saved. They didn't really experience God's salvific work. No, 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 no. They absolutely did, and that's Paul's point. 
all of them were under the presence of God in the cloud. All of them were redeemed through the baptism. You know, baptism in Moses. All of them received the sustaining power of God through the water and the spiritual food. Just as all of us have experienced the grace of God extend to us in the work of Jesus, being baptized with him, being baptized in him, receiving his his body and blood in the in the elements. But yet the warning remains for them as it does for us that God was not pleased with most of them. And his point is is very simple, that all who start the journey don't finish the journey. All who go out, not all of them get home. There's a journey that the people of God went on, and it's a type and an example for us. And it's a warning that as we are journeying in our life, and we're encountering dangers and trials and snares, well, it's dangerous. And we shouldn't be like them. So the question remains, though, well, how do we get through the wilderness? How do we get out the other side? How do we, when we're entering, going through this, this journey, how do we make sure that we don't become like them? Well, the first thing is to recognize what is the real problem. We are, and the first order that, you know, that Paul calls us to is to be wise, to be wise in our journey. Read with me again verse 6, and he says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did, right? Now, remember, this is an example for us, and what Paul is, is wanting to say is, he's, the problem that they were that they had was, their, what the NIV says, is setting their hearts. What I think is probably a little, bit, a little bit more accurate is, you know, they had cravings. That's, you know, the desire, strong desires. It's, they, they craved evil. And what Paul's point is, you know, if, as we're going through this journey, the biggest problem that we're going to face is not the things that are on the outside, like the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Amalekites, but no, no, no. The, the big problem that we're going to face, the big danger, is our own cravings. That sin emerges from our disordered desires, our love for the things that God hates, our hatred for the things that God loves. And in this world, it's far too common for our world to, to think of you know, our desires, our cravings, as pointing us to what is truly good. That this is, the thing, this is how we navigate life, is to look inside and see, this is what's good. This is what I desire. I need to go out and grab hold of it. Our world proclaims that all the time. But the scriptures say, no, our desires are often misguided. Our desires can lead to doom. And this isn't just the Bible. This has been said about human nature for, for you know, thousands of years, even outside the Bible. Right? You think about Homer's Odyssey. They're on, this, they're on their own journey. And they come across the sirens, right? the, these mythical beings out in the sea who sing this beautiful song to entice men, and anyone who hears it is drawn to them, and they find their death among the rocks. That there's something about our human nature, 
our ability to crave the things that are not good for us, that don't get us to where we ultimately want to go. And Paul's point is, we must be wise. We must understand that the things that I desire, the things that I sometimes long for, can lead to my death rather than life. Just as it did for the people of God in Old Testament Israel. Now, while our world has a hard time coming, you know, agreeing with this idea in many different respects, there is one respect where it can often seem patently obvious where we cannot deny it. And part of the reason I like the word cravings is because it points us to that. With food, right? We know, if you've been around for long enough, that my body doesn't this doesn't crave the right things in the right quantities at the right times. Right? I want it, I desire cake over carrots. And I desire much more than is probably good for me almost all the time. I don't know if you've ever you know, struggled with the same thing. And then the worst part is when you give in to some of that, what ends up happening? Well, you know, you get a little bit bigger, but the worst part is that your body begins to adjust to that diet. And your body craves continuing in that diet. You ever try to like cut out sugar completely? And like what it does to, to your mind and you feel like you're, you're going to die? Or, you know, imagine somebody, you know, who is a hundred pounds overweight, and they decide, you know, I, I get it, I need to lose weight, I need to get healthier, um, and I, I understand the promise of, of losing this weight, I'm gonna have more energy, I'm gonna feel better, I'm gonna sleep better, I'm gonna be happier. And then they lose, you know, about you know, the first 10, 10 to 15 pounds, goes off pretty easy, but then something happens to their body. And you can, read, you know, there's a book called The Hungry Brain that you can read a little bit about this. But, you know, your body desires to, to stay at the same level. And so, you know, you may be, you know, 100 pounds overweight, lose 15, you're still 85 pounds overweight. And then what ends up happening is your body is literally telling you, I am starving, we are going to die, you need to eat now. Is it true? Not really. But it feels true. It's literally telling, if we don't eat, we are going to die. You must get food. That's why dieting is so hard. And it, de- it demands, of, and, you know, and that's the kind of craving that oftentimes can overtake a person's life. And it feels so strong and so natural. But the wise person says, the wise person looks and says, my desires aren't necessarily reflecting reality. My desires are, are something that is, is disordered because the thing, I haven't been trained to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates the way he's called us to do it. And so for, for Israel, as they were wandering through the wilderness, they had their own cravings. Some of them craved idolatry. What's going to lead us to the good life? Is it going to be the Lord who delivered us, or is it going to be idols? Others craved sexual immorality. Where do we get our sexual ethics from? My desires, my cravings, they feel so deep. They feel, they feel so, so close to me. Where do I get them from? The Lord and what he said. 
How do I deal with when things don't go the way I want? My cravings is to complain and grumble and to cast my, you know, shake my fist at heaven and say, you need to give me better. Or do I rejoice? And in each of these areas, as the people of God are wandering through the wilderness, you know, whereas all of them received the, the salvific grace of God, but most of them died, and the way that they, the way that they fell under judgment varied for different, you know, at different times. Some did this, some did this, some did this, some did this. That along this journey, all of us are going to come face to face with cravings that are not of God, that can seek to derail us. And the word of Paul is, be wise. Base your life upon what the word of God has said. Base your life upon what he has declared through the scriptures. Don't base it upon what's the urges that we feel deep within us. These are the cravings that seek to devour us. So he calls us to be wise, and then he also calls us to be vigilant. Read with me in verses 11 again, 11 and 12. So these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. As we walk through the journey, we, often, we sometimes think that we are, we are safer than we are. Sin lurks. Sin is sneaky. As has been said, that within every sin is the seed of apostasy. And sometimes we think that some of them are big and we understand, oh, we should probably stay away from those things. You know, like idolatry, yeah. Some of them are socially convenient, like, you know, sexually immorality. And we can maybe understand, okay, that... that and then some of them are just, they seem small. Grumbling? Complaining? No, 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 no. You, you have to understand, God... I, I'm speaking truth to power. I'm not actually, you know, complaining. That, that's what people are judged for? That's why their bodies are in the wilderness? I mean, that's, that's the way of life for us. But what we think are some are big and some are small, in every sin, is the seed of apostasy. And we think that at some points that we can handle it it's the greatest lie that we ever tell ourselves. Just, you know, I can handle it. I can manage it. You know, it's, it's kind of like that, the lie that we tell ourselves. You know, I just have, you know, one bite of the cake, one potato chip. I'm a grazer, so if it's out, I'm just, I'm eating it. Um, sometimes my wife tricks me by putting out vegetables so that I'll eat them. But it's one of those, it's one of those, they say, you know, we think that we can handle it, we think that we can manage it, but it, you know, from the, the big sins to the little sins, all of them, all of them are threats. They're not something to be played with. They're not, they're not pets that we can, you know, hang out with. They represent the threats to our lives. And he says, be vigilant. You think that you're standing, be careful, you might fall. You think that, you know, you've experienced, you know, God's grace and that you're, you're, 
you've experienced the, the glories of his salvation and that you're good to go, that you're set for forever. It's for you, he says. Be careful. And in some Christian circles, we're more apt to tell the fallen that they're standing than to warn that the standing that they may fall. Whether it's to condone sin or whether it's in, in a, a misappropriated uh, assurance of God's salvation, a presumption upon our own experiences of grace. And this is exactly what Paul is coming against when he says, listen, the people of Israel, they experienced God's salvation. They experienced, they, they were baptized like you. They had their own spiritual food and spiritual drink. But yet, but yet, their bodies are strewn about the desert. So he calls us to, to be wise, to be vigilant, to cut out all sin. And he, last, he, or next he tells us to be repentant. The good news is that as Paul's writing these things and he's given these examples of the ways that Israel has sinned, he is not saying, be careful if you do any of these things. Well, you've lost it. God's done with you which is a, a pretty good thing because if God was done with us after we complained once or twice, it would, well, we probably shouldn't be here anymore. Because these are the sins, these are the very sins that he's been rebuking them for throughout the whole letter. And yet he still has an assurance that, that he writes at the beginning of the, the epistle. He says, you know, he's going to keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like Israel, you know, he, he's... Some of them are going to pagan temples and eating the meat sacrificed to idols and engaging in idolatry. idolatry. Like Israel, they've given themselves to, to fornication and sexual immorality all over the place. Like Israel, they're rejecting and rebuking the one that the Lord has given to, to lead them. Now you can hear in sometimes the, Paul's hurt as he writes to them in their rejection of his own uh, life and ministry for them. And his point is not, once you do these things, that God is done with you. But his point is this, if you've done these things, don't be so self-assured and presumptuous upon the grace of God that you forget that you still must repent and bring your life into order and alignment with his call on you. It's, it's a real threat that must be repented of as to realign ourselves with. So he tells us to be wise, to be vigilant, to be repentant, but last of all, to be encouraged. Read with me again verses 13 and 14. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. That God is faithful, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So the first thing that we need to be encouraged by is what we experience, we are not unique or defunct when we experience temptation. We did not necessarily get you know, an aberrant salvation. What we experience, the people of God have experienced from well, the days of Egypt at least. Our own temptations are not 
because somehow, you know, we, we, we missed the blessing. No, our, our temptations as we go through this life are common to the, the cause of man. We experience them just like everyone else. And some give in and fail. Others give in and repent and find the life of, of God in them and find victory. And we are not alone as we experience that. And take comfort in that. And secondly, take comfort in this and be encouraged about God's faithfulness for you. He wants you to succeed. He wants his people to succeed and overcome sin. He is with us. He is for us. He's working among us. You know, I don't know if you ever watched, you know, some spy dramas or things of like this, but there's this fairly common trope where, you know, one of the good guys on the spy, you know, the spy team or whatever, uh, gets kidnapped by the bad guys. And they're going to take them back to their evil lair and torture them until they give the secrets. And then every, you know, it's either going to be, you know, the whole world collapses or everyone dies because they have undercover agents. Something like that's happening. And then one of the guys on the good guys, you know, says, we need to rescue so-and-so or, you know, before he talks. Or else it's all, we're going to lose everything. And then somebody else says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, it's too risky. Maybe he's not going to talk. And then the first person goes and responds and says something like this. He says, everybody talks. It's just a matter of time. That no one can endure the torture, you know, forever until they eventually give in and talk. And sometimes we think that as we undergo temptation, it's, you know, it's just a matter of time. They're, it's eventually going to wear us down and destroy us. That, you know, as I, can, I can try my hardest for, for brief moments, but, but eventually it's going to keep pounding, pounding, pounding until I finally give in. And what does Paul say? No, that God has a rescue plan for his people. That he doesn't hang them out to dry just to see how long they can, you know, make it until they, they fall again into sin. No, 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 no. God desires to save his people and to keep his people from sin, to keep them from crashing against the rocks, to, from hearing the, the siren saw that we're, until it becomes too unbearable and we, we fall to our demise. That God is at work among his people where we are not going to be tempted beyond what we can bear. That he's going to provide a way out. That God gives his people a rescue squad, and as we undergo temptation, we should not sit back and think, it's just a matter of time before I give in. No, God is faithful. He's on the side of his people. He's called us to be holy and blameless. He's given us everything that we need to do so. He's given us the, his son who not only cleanses us from sin's past, not only redeems us by his blood, but he gives us power to move forward. Power to overcome sin. The sin that once entangled us, the sin that was once so strong, the sin that has ensnared us, that God by his power redeems us from. That God has, has through the, his son, by the power of the spirit, is, can do a work in his people. And as we are on our journey and we're walk, walking through the wilderness, 
And we're tempted to give ourselves and to, to be ensnared by the desires that lurk within. Know this, that God is faithful to bring you through. That our desires aren't going to lead us always to, to the way that we want to go. That we can be like them. But the promise of the gospel is we can also be not like them. That God brings his victory to his people. While he calls us to be wise and to be vigilant and to, to be repentant, ultimately he calls us to, to come and be faithful, to cast our faith upon him to bring us through from beginning to end. With that, I'd like to call up the worship team and let's pray. Father, we, uh, I ask that by your spirit even now that you would speak to your people and that you would reveal to us, to all of us, of the sin that entangles, of the sin that, that could cause our demise. Whether it's something that's big and obvious or something that's, that's small and, and easily ignorable, Holy Spirit, come and convict our hearts. And Father, I ask that for your people, for us even now, that by the power of your spirit that you would break the power of canceled sin. That you would set free your people from uh, th these, these cravings that seem so strong that they're undeniable. That we can walk holy and blameless before you. And in all things, Lord, among us, your people, glorify yourself. Glorify your name and that of the Son and of the Spirit. That we would truly be your people and you are God, we pray. In the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus, amen.